Daily Drive is brought to you by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Innovation. Resilience. Agility. It's how Michigan businesses continue to work together to make a difference now and shape the future. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org slash radio. Jamie Butters, Chief Content Officer at Automotive News. Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, August 11, 2021. Automakers have been remarkably profitable despite production limitations brought on by a shortage in computer chips. How did they do it? Sure, they cut back on incentives and prioritized high-margin vehicles, but one of the biggest keys in 2021 has been the performance of the automakers' finance arms, at least for those that have them, Ford Motor Company, for instance, would have lost money in the second quarter had it not been for Ford Credit. I asked Joel Levington, the lead credit analyst for the automotive and industrial sectors at Bloomberg Intelligence, about the importance of these bank-like subsidiaries and what we should expect from the companies that don't have one, such as Tesla, Stellantis, and Subaru. Who might follow GM's example and who might follow Mazda's? We reached Joel at his home office in New Jersey. Joel Levington, welcome to Daily Drive. Thanks so much, Jamie. It's great to be here. So let's set the stage a little. Uh, most coverage of automakers, of course, centers on the, the automotive operations, the, the factories, the market share, the incentives, and ultimately the profits. But a key source of profits for the automakers, for most automakers, isn't just the making and selling of cars and trucks. It's from the financial business, lending money to consumers and dealers uh, to support the auto operations and make a nice profit in the meantime. Uh, Also those financial units that make the automakers uh, the massive borrowers that they are, uh, which which makes them a particular interest to debt investors such as uh, Bloomberg's clients. So Joel is uh, the lead credit analyst for for the automotive sector at Bloomberg Intelligence. how do you go about looking at these uh, these captive lenders and their role in the auto industry? Sure, Jamie. Uh, those are great questions. Uh, I would start with strategically, they're incredibly important to the uh, to the manufacturer uh, having access to uh, client data uh, when their leases may be coming up and the ability to market to them, uh, understanding what their needs are and. If you think about it going forward, uh, Ford has done a great job of outlining uh, their business as moving from a product business to a service business uh, and offering services, whether it's going to be um, programming that might be uh, played through their one of their cars or knowing when a car needs a, um, an update or a repair. All of these things can run through the finance company in a way uh, and give them meaningful access to their customer base uh, and and, and a a more uh, meaningful way than than not. And so strategically, they have a great importance. But also, uh, if you think about the profitability of the companies, I would say on average, a captive finance usually generates about 15 to 20% of the total profits of an auto OEM. Uh, But what's more meaningful to them is that it's very, very consistent profitability uh, even in difficult times like the Great Recession, uh, or if you look at uh, the pandemic that we had, these are the profit generators that can offer huge dividends back to their parents. These units, uh, just like a, a bank, are highly financed with debt. And if I just think about Ford Motor Credit and GM Financial, 
Uh, they have about 104 billion of unsecured bonds outstanding, and that's about 78% of the automakers' total capitalization. So they have a huge impact uh, in the capital markets uh, and also very important meaning to the uh, to the parents as well. Well, we are in kind of turbulent times here in the industry right now with the, the chip shortage on the manufacturing side and also which has led to a vehicle shortage really throughout uh, the market. And yet it's the credit arms that are really powering the profitability, at least here for the, the Detroit automakers. Uh, you mentioned that typically they'll produce you know 15 to 20 percent of the profits. GM Financial was basically 40 percent of GM's uh, pretty strong second quarter results. And uh, I think uh, with Ford, it, Ford would have lost money if it wasn't for the <laughs> billion and a half, billion six that Ford credit earned. So that's uh, they certainly are are earning their keep uh, these days. You're totally right, and in some ways, the chip shortage, while being a, a big pain for the manufacturing arm, uh, has been a huge boost for the finance companies, uh, mainly because of leases and what that does to auction values. And uh, I'm I'm sure you've seen through like the Mannheim index uh, that uh, used cars are very close to record high prices. Um, you know, I, I believe the index over the two-year stack is up about 40%. So if I went back to July of 2019 versus today, the index is about 40% higher. And when you have that, the value of your lease increases, and that uh, reduces depreciation for the uh, manufacturing parent, and that additional profit gets passed on. So while it's hurt uh, one, you know, like the left pocket of uh, the autos in their manufacturing side, the right, the right pocket has gotten richer from it. Yeah, a forty percent number. I saw Ford uh, reported the same. They said prices jumped above twenty eight thousand dollars per off lease vehicle in the second quarter, compared with just over twenty thousand a year earlier, which is just amazing. So General Motors, uh, for instance, one example: General Motors Financial had record low lease returns, right? Because the people who have those vehicles, uh, they can they could maybe buy them out and sell them elsewhere, sell them to Carvana or to a neighbor. And uh, so, yeah, 89% of expiring GM leases in the second quarter were bought by the consumer or the originating dealer. Is that a, how much of a long-term concern is that if the, if the trend continues to, for the bottom lines of GM financial and, and other captives? Well, I think for the captives, uh, that is probably uh, a net positive for them. Um, obviously, at some point, uh, uh, asset growth has to continue, uh, and you need to have the manufacturing side putting out new product. Uh, if you listen to most of the auto OEMs, they uh, continue to push back when the semiconductor issue might get resolved. Uh, some had thought it could be as early as the third quarter of this year. Now it kind of sounds like the first half of next year, but eventually that'll work itself out. But in the meantime, what it's doing is really propping up used car values. Uh, which underlies the uh, the assets and the leases that um, that the finance companies have. So net net, my my guess is it'll be a positive for the uh, for the finance companies and a negative for the manufacturing side. So with Ford, uh, Ford Credit, they're a, a big part of their improvement. You know, their uh, quarter improved by more than a billion dollars. About three quarters of that was from the lease residuals, mm -hmm. uh, but the other quarter was from uh, credit loss. And they certainly they changed some projections, perhaps on. Uh, I think they were being cautious about what the COVID recession or the COVID economy might do to uh, 
the chance that people can't make their payments if they have to do repossessions. Uh, but then they said it was, uh, it was not as bad as had been anticipated. Does that sound right? Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. I think there's probably two components of the uh, consumer credit uh, uh, component uh, issue that, uh, that that are worth talking about. Um, one is that uh, is that earlier the, in the year, the captives implemented a large accounting change. And certainly I don't want to bore your audience with, with the details, but the basic goal was to assume that losses on leases would occur up front as opposed to a point in time. And that increased the reserves at both Ford Motor Credit and GM Financial uh, at the beginning of the year. And now with recovery rates strong and consumer credit quality robust, the autos have been able to reevaluate what the assumed total losses might look like. And essentially they're reclaiming that profit potential that was taken away at the beginning of the year, uh, and that's coming in. Now, when we talk about consumer credit uh, and the state of the consumer, they're leading the charge uh, in, in the market. And you can see that through the GDP data uh, with double digit growth in goods and services in July, if you, if you just look at the government information. Um, I'm sure that would have been higher too if there were, <laughs> if there were more vehicles uh, available. But I think what that means for Ford Motor Credit and GM Financial, um, to your point, they were able to record more than a half a billion of profits in 2Q before taxes from the lower expected credit losses. I would expect that trend to, to wean out a little bit in the second half. And that's because there were government programs that were given during the, the height of the pandemic that are running off. And so you will see uh, credit tick up a little bit in terms of losses, but should still be uh, year over year positive for, uh, for the finance companies. Let's turn to Toyota. They're a little harder to uh, read sometimes, or at least hard, harder for me to feel like I'm, I see as much of what is happening uh, in their massive uh, <laughs> operations, mm-hmm. uh, but the operating income doubled to about 1.8 billion with uh, revenue pretty steady. Was it the similar phenomenon for for their operations, or what what did you see there? Yeah, you you saw the uh, very similar trends there. Um, but what I would say, at least in terms of a, through the, the lens of a credit analyst, is that Toyota tends to be the cream of the crop uh, when it comes to um, you know risk and and risk aversion. Uh, they do quite an amazing job of maintaining huge amounts of liquidity uh, to support the business. They they essentially could go over a year uh, without needing access to the capital markets. Um, their asset quality is very similar. Uh, their leverage is lower than peers like Ford Motor Credit and GM. Uh, and obviously, the manufacturing side does just an amazing job of putting out good products that uh, at a reasonable price that consumers want. That, that doesn't hurt any. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> Toyota Financial has uh, expanded, uh, I guess, was it last year uh, and now covers Mazda customers, at least here in, in North America or in the U.S. Do you see any further expansion opportunities for Toyota? I mean, maybe, you know, is Subaru a ripe option? Maybe some business they could take from J.P. Morgan Chase? Yeah, totally. I think Subaru is kind of an interesting uh, component, especially because about 20% of the Subaru business is uh, is lease business. Um, so having access to very low cost financing and Toyota has the lowest cost financing in the global automotive sector uh, is, is one mechanism that they could use to further increase their profitability and, and certainly share that with uh, uh, with their partner, Subaru. Oh, that would be that would be very interesting. Of course, Toyota has yeah an equity position in Subaru as it does in Mazda. So 
kind of a, a tightening tightening family situation there, especially if if they took over the Subaru finance. What about? I mean, could Toyota even offer services for you know Stellantis or Tesla? Uh, that I, I I wouldn't go as far to saying. I think uh, with Stellantis, and I think you've had this call right for for quite some time. Uh, now that the, especially now that they have uh, combined and the merger seems to be going quite well, uh, they should really be thinking about their own captive uh, finance company. Uh, clearly, they have a, a, a stake in one, uh, but having a global captive finance to really go after the RAM and Jeep business, I think, would be uh, a very good competitive uh, uh, move on their part, especially when you think about uh, uh, Ford and what they're doing. Uh, going after the commercial customer in a more in a more meaningful way, uh, being able to give the RAM customer the same kind of uh, product would be uh, competitively uh, a, a wise move in my in my view. Tesla, as yeah. we know, uh, is is vertically integrated. They do everything uh, on their own, and as their credit quality improves, and uh, and my view is that they will uh, eventually move to investment grade, perhaps within the next twenty four months. Uh, that will open the doors for them to have a finance comp- a full financial company as well. We'll be back with Joel Levington of Bloomberg Intelligence after this. Innovation. Resilience. Agility. It's how Michigan businesses work together and continue to build the future. Our expertise, talented workforce, and collaborative environment are making a difference now and shaping the future. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org slash radio to put your plans in motion. That's michiganbusiness.org slash radio. Let's uh, break that apart a little. We've got uh, Stellantis has a captive in Europe, right, Mm -hmm. through the former PSA group. That's exactly right. How much, how difficult would it be for them to just expand that to North America? There, I'm sure there's some legal paperwork involved, but operationally, is it pretty simple? Uh, yeah. Again, I, I don't want to uh, uh, pretend that I'm a regulatory analyst <laughs> either, Jamie. But but what I would tell you is that uh, it is something that the former Fiat, Chry- uh, Fiat Chrysler uh, had talked about prior to the merger as uh, one of their goals. And it was one of the reasons that they wanted to be investment grade was to have access to low cost uh, financing for that. Uh, So I think they understood the value of having a full captive, both from the strategic standpoint that we talked about, as well as the financial benefits of having one. Um, So my guess is that will be something that they'll look at, uh, especially as their consolidation continues. uh, And if the merger goes well, it'll free up uh, their time to to do that. So I would assume that that would happen in the coming uh, in the coming years, yeah. And then, what about Tesla? What are the barriers to just starting starting a captive, starting a you know a, a financing company from scratch? Yeah, starting one from scratch is difficult, and that's why uh, GM bought back into it after they sold right. GMAC. <laughs> so that might be something that they would consider in terms of an acquisition. Uh, and the same thing for Stellantis as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be an organically grown business. Uh, that could be something that could be acquired uh, because really it, it, to, to be able to put together the kind of talent and, infra- and technology infrastructure that you need 
would take a lot of time. And, uh, and for something like that, it might be uh, cheaper to execute uh, such an event through, uh, through an acquisition than, a, um, than in an organically uh, grown business. Yeah, in hindsight, uh, GM, as you alluded, right, they sold GMAC kind of early in the financial crisis, right? Uh, well before the bankruptcy, before GM's bankruptcy, and much of those operations, those GMAC operations have become ally financial, which is uh, seems pretty solid these days. But then GM uh, got in it, they bought, now you're making me think, uh, was it uh, AmeriCredit? AmeriPrize, AmeriCredit? Yep, yep. Yeah. And uh, and then made a GM financial kind of got them in on the subprime side and and they've really just built that into a into a very strong business. They totally have, and they've also done a very good job over the past five years of reducing risk on the asset base. Um, if you looked at their uh, at their at their retail loan portfolio in 2016, it was you know maybe 40 percent of it uh, was subprime which obviously exposes uh, the business to operating losses during downturns. They've gotten that down to about 19% now, and that continues to shrink. Um, so they've done a very good job of managing the risks over there. Definitely sets out a, a roadmap for anyone else trying to, uh, you know, to, to emulate. You mentioned the importance of uh, for Stellantis to support the Ram business going against Ford on commercial. I guess to me, I'm also looking at all of these um incredible Jeep stores that are being built. I mean, not all, I mean there's only a, a handful relatively, uh, but some real uh, showpieces. Of course, we tend to think about these companies and the lending they make to consumers, uh, but dealers are also a, a hugely important customer of the credit company <laughs> uh, in a way that's, that's you know, very important to the operations of the, of the entire system. With inventory so low, uh, is you know a lack of floor plan uh, the the loans on inventories is that a a bit of a concern for the automakers and for the the captives or is that just a cyclical thing? Uh, if anything, I would say it's probably a, a a net benefit to the to the dealership right because the dealer has uh, less capital uh, held uh, tied up right now uh, both in inventory and uh, and I guess the op- the other side of the uh, balance sheet would be. Uh, on the on the uh, on the floor planning that they have with their part with their uh, manufacturing partner, so uh, for them, I think it's probably a net positive. I, I think you know, like going forward, I think the question for the whole auto industry, and it's it's a major issue, is going to be you know what is the right amount of, of inventory for the dealer to have, right? Because uh, clearly, as supply uh, starts to loosen itself up, uh, we've seen how powerful pricing can be right now. Uh, if you restock them to kind of the same levels that you had in the past, that will, again, bring back heavy discounting and lower your total profitability. So, you know, I'm sure they're all working on their algorithms to try to figure out what's the right amount of inventory to make sure that you're, uh, you know, giving the customer what they want at the time that they want it uh, and in the style that they want. But at the same time, not to overstock the dealers, and that way they can kind of maximize the total profitability. That'll that'll help the, the full uh, food chain of uh, of autos and auto suppliers and dealers over time. Um, but who knows in such a fragmented market if everybody will uh, play nicely or <laughs> or right. somebody will go after market share. It's, it certainly has happened before in the in the world of autos. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be very interesting. Certainly the. The gut algorithm of all the executives is is some number lower than in the past, 
but how much lower and and as you said as you intimated the uh, how how long they have the stomach for potentially losing a customer to someone down the road <laughs> uh, is always uh, always a challenge so that'll be will be fascinating to see that play out I wanted to ask you one more kind of big picture question before we wrap up um, so you know these for these lenders they've got to be enjoying the incredibly uh, low interest rates in general, right there, um, and the, the Fed has stayed pretty committed, seemingly pretty solidly committed to uh, a loose money policy, or at least uh, you know making sure that credit remains available. Is that how much of a risk is you know the this idea that inflation could force the Fed's hand to tighten credit policy? Is that something that that you're worried about, or that you see investors worrying about with these? Uh, with these lenders? Well, I think uh, from a bigger picture, um, you know, I think there's a there's a debate every day in the capital markets about if there's if inflation is skyrocketing. And certainly when you you listen to the auto OEMs, they'll tell you about their commodity costs uh, rising very dramatically. Uh, and at the other side, you look at uh, the overall data, which says and what the Fed is telling you is that uh, inflation is with, you know, like within their uh, within their guidelines and uh, and keeping rates where they are is probably a thing that will continue at least through 2022 before they consider raising rates. And what I would say what that means in the near term is that for most of these auto finance companies, their debt usually runs about three years or four years, very much in line with the leases that they have. Um, you know, they try to do a lot of asset liability matching. And what they can do at this point is they are continue to retire uh, higher cost debt and replace it with uh, low cost debt. I think it's quite, uh, I never thought I would be in a world where an investment grade uh, issuer could issue 12 year bonds for under 2%, um, <laughs> especially considering uh, the, the risk that you take uh, when dealing with the auto sector, but that's what they can do. Um, and that benefits the, the auto company in two ways, right? Uh, in, in one case, from a strategic standpoint, they can reduce the cost of financing for their uh, customer and encourage them to buy their vehicles. Although right now, because there are so few vehicles, it, <laughs> they don't really need a lot of encouraging. Uh, the, the, the other component is they can take that to the bottom line. And that's uh, pretty much what was happening in the first half of the year where you saw, to your point, uh, funding costs uh, decline and interest expense shrink with it, uh, even though the balance sheets are, are, are very similar. So they've added their, to their profitability uh, thanks in part to the Fed. Okay. Well, Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk about these uh, these quiet but hugely important uh, parts of the automakers. Oh, my pleasure, Jamie. I, I hope to talk to you again soon. That's Daily Drive for August 11. For the latest news on the auto industry, type in autonews.com. And for a complete catalog of more than 300 interviews, go to autonews.com slash daily drive. Thanks for listening.